Let's go to the Word this morning, the book of Acts. We're going to study and uh, talk about strategic leadership. And uh, I'm praying that God's going to use this text to encourage you in some very, very practical ways in your spiritual life, your spiritual walk, but also just in your, in your marriages, in your families, in your workplace. Uh, there's some great information here uh, that will help us to become even more effective in the calling that God has in our life. But let's read the text first uh, from Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Father, we thank you for your word, and it really is a a tremendous privilege to gather to study it. And uh, to be able to read it this morning, but every day, every morning, to be able to get up and to allow your words to transform our lives, to, to show us a clearer revelation of who you are and your plans for our life as, as well as for the world. And Lord, we can't wait for what you have for us this morning. I know what I'm going to share and what you've shown me, but uh, I get blessed uh, hearing your word as well. And so I'm asking that you would bless all of us, Lord. And give us a real joy in hearing it, the privilege that we have, but also the opportunity that we have before us to put it into practice and to exercise true wisdom. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be honored by what happens here this morning and that, God, our hearts would be blessed and that we would be edified and and moved closer in relationship with you as a result of our time gathered here today. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. amen. Well, if you've been with us uh, for any length of time as we've been going through the book of Acts, you know that there's been a a consistent pattern of explosive growth in the church. And it started on the day of Pentecost, where 3,000 people were saved uh, from from Peter's first sermon. (laughs) Amazing. And then in Acts 4.4, we find out that 5,000 men alone are believers, which if you figure a woman for every man and maybe a child or two, we're talking somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people have come to Christ in the span of somewhere between a month or two months in time. And uh, it's, it's, it's exhilarating. It must be an uh, uh, incredible moment to be a part of, dynamic, and it was supernatural, really, ultimately. But along with that kind of growth comes some enormous administrative problems. And if you're an administrator, you're you're immediately thinking, how do you handle 20,000 people? If you're not an administrator, you're just thinking, isn't this wonderful? We're all together, you know? But from an administration standpoint, uh, helping organize and work with and meet the needs of 20,000 people is an enormous, daunting task. Now, you remember the population is somewhere about 40 to 50,000 in Jerusalem, the normal population. 
so about half of the people of Jerusalem that are there at this point are converted. Now, they're still having the festivals and things that are going on, and so the, the population is kind of swelled because of visitors that have come into town. But nonetheless, this is an enormous movement that's taking place, and God is doing some incredible things. And of course, whenever um, uh, you know, God is working, Satan is going to be interested. He's going to be interested in, in attempting to derail the purposes of God, and we'll be talking about that. But I'm kind of was thinking about why did God include this kind of strange passage? It's not strange, unusual, but it seems to be kind of just an administrative issue. Why is God including something so basic and technical and, and it doesn't seem very spiritual to talk about the appointment of people to take care of administration? And uh, there's several reasons that I'd like to suggest to you. Uh, for the reason for this text. Number one is that it gives an accurate historical record of not only the, the wonderful spiritual things that were happening, but also some of the challenges that the early church faced. Because as we uh, study those kind of passages, it gives, gives us encouragement. Wow, we're not alone. There's some things that, that the early church went through that were difficult. The second reason is to highlight Satan's ongoing effort to derail the purposes of God. And that's important because uh, as we see the Spirit of God working through the book of Acts, and his name comes up frequently, Satan is also there behind the scenes attempting to undermine, destroy, and kill the work of God. The third purpose for this passage is to provide believers with godly principles for dealing with conflict, whether it arises in the church or in our marriages or in the family or in the community. And the last purpose, I believe, is to encourage us as believers to step up in ministry in areas of our giftings. And so we'll be talking about those things this morning. But as I mentioned, um, you know, whenever Satan sees a dynamic work happening, he is very interested and he becomes very aggressive in his efforts to undermine and derail the purposes of God. In fact, in the book of Acts, uh, we've, we're only in chapter six and we've already found three major strategies of the enemy that he used then and he continues to use today. The first was persecution. You remember how the Sanhedrin, they kept calling in the disciples. They called them in in uh, chapter 3. They called them in in chapter 5 and basically said, you've got to stop teaching in this name. Well, the purpose was to shut them up, to eliminate the, the possibility of the gospel continuing to have its effect, to silence them into compliance. But we know what God's remedy to that was, is that he delivered the disciples in a very dramatic way and he said, keep doing it. Keep going out. Keep preaching the word. And so they did. The second strategy of the enemy was contamination, the pollution of sin within the church, compromise, hypocrisy. And that happened with Ananias and Sapphira. And, uh, and Satan's purpose was to dilute the, the power of the ministry of the church by allowing hypocrisy and compromise to enter in right at the very beginning of the, of the movement of the early church. And God brought correction to that. How did he do it? Well, he, he himself judged Ananias and Sapphira in a very dramatic way and brought a tremendous fear of the Lord into the hearts of the people within the church. And, uh, and the, the, the result was is that even unbelievers, even though that they were respected and feared the Christian movement, not the Christians, but the power of God and the holiness of God, the unbelievers were drawn to that and they kept coming by the thousands into the kingdom of God. The third way that Satan has tried, and now in this text is attempting to ruin the work of God, is through dissension. He uh, has in, uh, intended through internal conflict, uh, through misunderstanding or gossip or slander or hurt feelings or whatever might have happened, 
to bring division within the church. And of course, his purpose is to cripple the church with internal division, to keep it so busy being preoccupied with the problems within that they don't take care of the mission that God has called them to, which is to preach the gospel. You'll notice in each one of these efforts, the, the purpose is to stop the gospel. That's the purpose. It's not just to make the Christians miserable, but it's to stop the gospel. If you can stop it through persecution, if you can stop it through uh, contamination, if you can stop it through division, it doesn't matter to him. But he will use every strategy he can to stop the gospel from going out. We're told how he did it in this particular text. In verse one, we find that there are two groups of people, the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews. And the Grecian Jews were complaining against the Hebraic Jews. Now I need to give a little bit of background. The, uh, the uh, Grecian Jews are called Hellenists. In fact, in the Greek, it's the word Hellenist, not Grecian. But it's those that are Jews by ancestry their heritage is Jewish, and yet they're Hellenized, they're Greek in their language. They are, uh, they are people that through the di diaspora, which is the spreading out of the people of Israel during the persecutions that took place in the Old Testament, no longer lived in Israel. So do you remember the Assyrian invasion, the Babylonian invasion, the Medo-Persian invasion? When those occurred, the, the kings of those countries would take the, the leaders of Israel out and they would exile them into their foreign countries. And when they were exiled, uh, they had families and children and grandchildren and on down the line until many of these Jews, though they were Jews by ancestry, were essentially Greek in their, in their uh, outlook and their thoughts and how they communicated. Even their languages were part of the languages that were non-Jewish. So the result was is that they were Jews of ancestry, but, but in reality, they hadn't lived in Jerusalem for many years, maybe, maybe generations. And now, because of this powerful work that God is doing through Christ, and they're hearing about the fulfillment of all these prophecies, they want to come back because they are fully expecting that Christ is going to reign on the throne of David, as the scripture prophesied, and that they want to be a part of it now. And so they're kind of, in, in essence, latecomers to this powerful work of God. Now, on the other hand, you have the Hebraic Jews. Hebraic Jews were those Jews that were actually living in Jerusalem. And they took great pride in that because when, uh, when uh, Zerubbabel and Nehemiah came back during the Old Testament period to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Israel, what happened is that, um, that they were invited to bring friends and bring other people with them to this missions effort in Israel. And the result was is that these people courageously came at the risk of their lives to rebuild the temple and rebuild Israel. And then they had children and they had children's children and on it went down the line. And they had great pride in the fact that they didn't cut and run, if we can put it in those terms. That they were the ones that were willing to come when it was hard. And now that God was blessing and all these wonderful things were happening, they were thinking, hey, we've paid a, a heavy price to see this and praise God it's happening. But they're looking at the Grecian Jews and, and they're thinking to themselves, yeah, where were you the whole time when it was tough? Where were you when, when it was a missions effort and when it was costly and when it was life-threatening? And now you show up and, and reap all the benefits that we've laid the foundation for for all these generations. So there's this kind of unseen schism or division, or I would like to refer to it as like a fault line between tectonic plates. 
and it's, it's down there deep, and nobody really sees it. They know it's there, but it's not evidenced itself yet because we know from the book of Acts that the church is in this experiencing this homothumadon that we talked about last week, this like-minded passion for Christ, this intensity in their love for God, and they're excited about the Lord, but deep down below the waterline, below the, 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 the ground is this, this fault line that has the potential to bring catastrophic consequences to the church if it's not dealt with. And we find out from the text exactly what it was that was happening. It says that their widows, the Grecian widows, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. I need to give a little background here as well. Because we know from uh, Josephus that the Jewish people took very good care of their widows and of the orphans because it was commanded in Scripture. They had people who were a part of temple worship that every Friday would go out and collect alms for the widows and for orphans. And so they would go out to businesses and door to door in the community and they would collect uh, you know, gifts uh, to help support these poor widows and their orphans or orphans. And uh, every Friday that collection would be made and then the money would be distributed. And uh, enough money or resources or groceries in essence would be given for 14 meals, two meals a day for a week. And then next Friday would come and they would go out and collect again. But when these Hebrews became Christians, some 20,000 of them, and a, a, a number of those people, maybe hundreds, we're not quite sure, were widows or orphans, they were rejected by the Jews because they had turned to Christ. And they were rejected from the opportunity to receive the benefits of this collection. So now the church steps in and takes over the need. And they begin to take in the collection for these widows and orphans. Now, for some reason, and I think it was probably had more to do with just an administrative problem, but the Grecian widows were feeling overlooked. They were feeling like they weren't getting a proper share, that the, that the, the Hebraic Jews were getting a better share than the Grecian Jews. And so all of a sudden, this, this fault line, the homothumadon was being interrupted. This oneness of heart, this tremendous unity that was having such an evangelistic impact was all of a sudden being threatened because of this problem of the Grecian Jews being overlooked. And so we find that uh, they complained. Now, we know well enough as believers that, that this wasn't the proper response, complaining. And actually in the, in the Greek, it means to murmur or grumble. We have lots of scripture on, on the forbidding of that, that it's inappropriate for a believer to grumble or to murmur. And they did the wrong things. There's no doubt about it. They went and talked to their other Grecian friends. And then the Grecians got upset and they got kind of worked up. And you know how grumbling and murmuring can do that? All of a sudden, something that's not that big a deal, all of a sudden, everybody's talking about. And it's like, yeah. And all of a sudden, you know what happens when people are grumbling and murmuring? They're not worshiping. They're certainly not evangelizing because they're too busy grumbling and murmuring about what's wrong and what they don't like and what they think needs to change. And so they're grumbling and murmuring when they should have gone, what the Bible says, if you have a problem, you go directly to the person privately. That's what the Bible teaches. Well, they didn't do that. It's really a mark of a, of a quarrelous, discontented, unhappy spirit. And we've all done it. There's not a person in here that hasn't grumbled or murmured. And we all know the impact it has on us. It just kind of sours our, our experience. It sours the experience of other people. It never leads to anything beneficial. It never leads to solutions. It certainly never leads to homothumadon, that intensity of like-minded passion for Christ. 
That's why James says, don't grumble with each other or you'll be judged. In fact, it goes on to say that the judge is standing at the door. It's like, I'm right here, Jesus is saying, <laughs> knocking. Don't grumble. Don't murmur about things that, that, uh, that you feel are somehow mishandled or oversights or, or, or offenses or whatever. That's an inappropriate response. Paul goes on to say, do everything without complaining or arguing, or in the Greek, it's grumbling or murmuring, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you like, shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. So here's the wonderful thing about, about not grumbling and complaining, which we, we've all done. But the wonderful thing about not doing it is it's actually an evidence that we're born again. It, it identifies us as children of God. It also goes beyond that and says that when we don't live that kind of a life, because we all have problems, any organization, whether it's a church or a family or a business or a community is gonna have problems. And we are facing at that moment when we recognize a problem, either being a part of the solution or grumbling and mumbling and complaining and murmuring. But when we choose not to do that, but to trust God, then the Bible says that we shine like stars in the universe. I mean, I, I, I mean, there's no other promise in the Bible that says anything like that. That if we will not grumble and murmur, that that by itself sets us apart as those that shine like stars in the universe. And it happens as we hold out the word of life, which gets back to the whole purpose for which Satan entices us to grumble and murmur is so that we'll so be distracted from, from the calling, which is holding out the word of life, right? That's, God's, that's Satan's objective, is to, is to prevent Christians from holding out the word of life. And so if he can use it through uh, murmuring and complaining, then he will. It's so important that we not allow Satan a foothold in our life in that area. And um, the Bible tells us exactly what to do if you have a problem. And we, we all have problems. We, if, uh, if you're living and breathing and you've got blood coursing through your veins, you're going to have conflict. You're going to have misunderstanding. You're going to have hurt feelings. You're going to have disagreement at times over certain things. And the Bible says very clearly how to handle that. It says if you are the offender, in other words, you've done something wrong and you know you've done something wrong or you're aware that something's not right. In Matthew 5, it says... Leave your gift at the altar. Don't even come and worship God. Don't even pray. Don't even, you know, uh, you know have this, this facade that, you know, I'm just going to seek you, Lord. I know I got all these things that I've done to people, but I'm, boy, I just want to worship you. God says, it's not that he doesn't want the worship. He just wants it in the proper order. And the proper order is making things right first and then coming to worship God. So if you've sinned against someone in some way, then the Bible says it's incumbent upon us, me, you, to go to that person first, get it all reconciled privately, and then bring your offering to God. That's the calling. Now, what if you've been sinned against? Well, Matthew 18, 15 through 17 tells us very clearly. If someone has sinned against you and it's caused kind of a grumbling and murmuring in your heart, then the Bible says, go to that person privately, by yourself. That's, I'm gonna, I don't know, alone, solo, no one else. I, I'm emphasizing that because so often what happens is that we intend to do Matthew 18, but not quite yet. You know, maybe next week, maybe next month. I'm not quite ready yet. There are too many, the holidays are here. I don't want to, uh, you know, and on and on it goes and it just never gets addressed. Things just, time passes and it just never gets corrected. 
Well, the Bible says that we need to go to them immediately and we need to go privately. What this means, if it isn't obvious already, I'm just gonna emphasize it though, is that we don't talk to anybody about it. I know this sounds a little odd. I was doing premarital counseling with some couples in our church and I was sharing with them that, uh, that, that with Becky and myself, when there's a problem, we even guard ourselves against talking to each other. And you're thinking, well, how can you do that? This is your spouse. You need to be able to debrief with somebody. You need to be able to kind of, in essence, grumble and murmur to somebody. You know, can't we do that with our spouse to at least get advice? But what I encourage people to remember is that your spouse is first and foremost a child of God. Being married doesn't give you permission to violate this principle in the word of God. And what I find for myself is that, okay, this is what happens. If I grumble and murmur to my wife, is that all of a sudden she's involved in something that number one, she's not personally a part of. Number two, she has no power to change. Number three, she has no authority to correct. And so all of a sudden I'm laying something on my wife that she can't do anything about, but her heart gets stirred up. And then she stirs me up even more. And pretty soon, something that really wasn't that big a deal because I voiced it and talked about it with her and everything else, all of a sudden, I'm worked up. And I'm distracted. And I'm, I've lost my peace. But I found when I don't say anything to her, I'm, I'm honoring God's word. I'm doing the correct thing. I'm not involving my wife. And it, and it brings me to the place of committing it to the Lord. Now, I'm not saying I can't say to my wife, honey, could you pray for me? I'm struggling with this situation and uh, don't really want to share any details with you, but just, a- just ask for God to have me. I-, I need wisdom. I need to know what to do. And I-, I need a right heart. See, I can share all that. But when I start kind of sharing the details in such a way that I'm lobbying my position with my wife, I'm grumbling and murmuring. I'm violating what the scripture teaches. And we have to be so careful, especially at home, because this is the arena where we either learn how to not grumble, or we continue to grumble, and then it spills out into a pattern with other people in our life. And so we've got to be so careful to apply scripture. Now, the Grecian Jews didn't do that. And, and it was threatening the church because of that. What they should have done is they should have come privately to the, to the apostles and said, you know, we don't want to complain. We don't want to be grumblers or murmurers, but somewhere along the way, we're just kind of feeling a little slighted here. We know you guys, the, the Hebraic Jews, feel like you're the pure church and you're the pure you know, Jews and all that. We can understand. We weren't here. You guys went through a lot. And uh, we're just glad to be here. But could we maybe correct this somehow? But instead, they grumbled and murmured and complained among themselves. Well, the, uh, the apostles... Uh, amaze me in this text. I look at this and I think, how did these guys get so smart so suddenly? You know, I mean, remember, these are the same guys that cut and run themselves. These are the guys that, that uh, just had a, a great deal of difficulty understanding the parables of Jesus, had a great deal of, uh, of trouble understanding, you know, what to do in certain circumstances. I mean, they couldn't get the, the, the word of Christ even when he plainly told them that he was going to suffer on the cross and die and, and rise from the dead. And it says in the text, they discuss this among themselves to what he was talking about, you know, over and over. But all of a sudden, these guys are geniuses. What happened? Well, I don't know, except that the Spirit of God rested on these men, and something powerful began to take place where they were rising up, and they had the power and the wisdom and the insight to know what to do. And so these guys, in verse 2, it says, conferred with all the disciples. It means a multitude. So it not was just amongst themselves and you know, pushing pencils in some private meeting with no sunshine law and all that happening at the time that we're so concerned about here on Kauai. But they didn't do that. They brought it out and they involved everybody in the solution. 
you know, I thought about this and I thought, um, I was reminded of something I learned when I was uh, getting my business degree in college. And one of the things that they teach you is there, uh, there are three ways to address a problem when a problem arises. One is with a win-lose, I win, you lose. Or with a lose-win, you win and I just lose because I, I'm just tired of working it out. You ever have this in your ma- marriage or family? It's just like, I don't care. I'm, I'm so tired. You, you win, whatever you want. Just you win. And we kind of give up like that. Some of you are smiling. You know what I'm talking about. And some of you are, it's like, it's win-lose. It's like, I, I'm gonna, I don't care what happens. I'm winning. You better know that from now is that from this point, you, every, every, you're wasting your breath. It's over. I mean, you can talk for weeks, we can, but I'm going to punish you so drastically in so many different ways that I'm going to win anyway, so just give up. And some, so many times in our relationships, we have this win-lose or lose-win, and we can't think that there's another option. But there is a third option, and that's win-win. Win-win takes more work. It takes more effort. It takes a great deal of listening and compassion. It takes counting the person more valuable and important than the resolution to the problem, more important than winning. And crazy as it sounds, some people want to lose. They just, it's like there's this pity kind of a, a, woe is me, I'll just lose again. I lose, I lose, you know. But but to win-win takes a great deal of compassion and tenderness and care and love for each other that motivates us to go beyond all the obstacles to find a win-win solution. And that's what the disciples do. They involve everyone and they say, you know what? We're not going to allow a win-lose situation or a lose-win. We want to find what is also termed the third way, a third way that none of us have thought of. I remember when, I, when Becky and I first got married, I didn't know how to do anything but win-lose or lose-win. And that's how we resolved a lot of our problems. One of us would kind of capitulate, the other would win. And, and, you know, if, if you've ever been a part of that, which of course you have, uh, it's a sour feeling and it, and, and it builds up this harboring of resentments that even though the problem is fixed, kind of, there's this underlying fault that's never really dealt with. And the result is this kind of sense of, I, I got gypped here in this situation. Or the guilt of like, oh, I kind of didn't treat him so well. But win-win never results in that. In fact, win-win advances the relationship and deals with the fault line simultaneously. And and for Christians, it helps us to advance the kingdom of God. And so that's what the disciples did. And in fact, I was thinking about this the other day because like in our our, uh, church leadership, we always try to aim for win-win. There's so many meetings that we've had with the board or with, with the church where it's like, it's like one group says this and another group says that. And it's like, you know, we could exercise authority and say, well, this is what we're going to do. You know, win-lose. But for the most part, we really try as a church to find win-win solutions to things that, that we can. You know, some things are just like, like the, the apostles. Hey, we've got to obey God rather than men. That's, that's a win-lose. That's just like we can't go any other direction. But when it comes to things that can be negotiated, we should always be aiming for win-win. And I began to learn this in my marriage many years ago, and I began to realize, wow, if we pray and we ask God for another way that neither one of us had thought of, that oftentimes we'll come up with a win-win. And suddenly it's like, it's like the, the sky parts, you know, the, the heavens clear, the sunshine comes out, and there's this thing sitting on this pedestal right in front of us, this, this answer. And it just like it got dropped out of heaven. And we're like, whoa, it's a win-win. This works. 
And, and Becky and myself, our relationship is strengthened, the fault line is dealt with, and, and we move on in a very wonderful way. And the long, we've been married 19 years now, and we're getting better and better at it. So we have fewer and fewer of those, I, I win, you lose, or I lose, you win. And we really work at having win-win situations. But I got, I, I got convicted as I studied this because I realized that in our last board meeting, which was last Wednesday, we were dealing with a few things that, that were kind of like win-lose. It was like, well, if we do this, then, then someone loses, and, if, and I win. And if we do this, then someone wins, and we lose. And, and we were struggling. And I was thinking to myself, this is not how we usually conduct our meetings. Why are we struggling? Why is this such a wrestling match? And it dawned on me after the fact that it was because we weren't getting to win-win. We weren't working toward, okay, let's clear the slate. There's got to be a way. God will provide a way. Let's ask him for how we can get there. Now, the crazy thing about God, how wonderful and gracious he is, is that he gave us a win-win in the end, and we didn't even know it. It actually happened after the meeting. God gave us a win-win for the situation. But I share it with you because even, even though I've been aware of this and, and practicing this for so many years, that I forget just like everybody else. So you might even be in a situation right now where you're dealing with the win-lose or a lose-win, and I want to encourage you that the apostles really modeled this, this win-win model that, uh, that the Bible really aims at. And so they conferred with all the disciples, and they made a couple of observations. They said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word and to wait on tables. Now, this whole ministry of the word is so important, and he contrasts it with waiting on tables as if waiting on tables was some sort of menial thing. Well, it's not. In fact, the ministry, diakoneos, where we get our word deacon from, uh, comes from this term. But it's waiting on tables is a very interesting word. It's trapezo. And it means to, uh, to administrate. It's not the guy that's just like the busboy of the table. This is the person who was responsible for administering this entire huge ministry that involved hundreds and hundreds of people. Thousands, really, because of the, the gathering of the, of the gifts. So they were responsible for gathering the gifts, for counting it, for all the accounting related to it, for identifying the people who were truly widows and truly orphans, and then distributing those gifts in an in equitable way. I mean, it was a very important task, but it was a gift of administration. And so, but the disciples say, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word. Why? Because they had a very particular calling as apostles to pray and to teach the Bible, to teach the word of God. All the gifts in the body are different. Everyone has different gifts, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, but let me share a quote from John MacArthur, who is a great expositor of the word of God. He says, related to this text, unfortunately, many men in the ministry today are busy doing everything but what God said was to be their priority, the ministry of the word of God. This problem has reached a crisis proportion. Pastors, teachers, missionaries, and evangelists are easily distracted from the word to serve tables. So congregations languish in spiritual infancy year after year, never having real spiritual food. Often the pastors are wonderful people, but they've been unwittingly pushed into those distractions by a congregation that has unbiblical expectations. The apostles knew why they had been given to the church, to teach the word of God and refused to neglect it because other responsibilities demanded their time. So their calling was to preach. They knew that that was the calling. That was what they were gifted by God to do. But this is the beautiful thing about the body of Christ, is that they recognized that other people had other types of gifts that needed to be exercised. 
And so this situation offered them the opportunity to gather all the disciples together, to confer, everyone was involved, and then to teach and equip along the way that, that someone needed to be raised up for this particular gift of administration. I remember a few years ago, um, a gal in our church, they, they moved to the mainland, but she came in and she was very involved in ministry. And she came in and was kind of confused about what she should really be doing. And she was feeling like she had too many things on her plate and needed to, to uh, release some of those responsibilities. And I was, all, I was like, yes, that's great. You need to. I'm glad you're doing that. Uh, and as we began to talk, I said, you know, what is it that you would really, really like to do? I mean, if you could do anything, what would you like to do in ministry? And she was quiet for a minute and she began to kind of smile. And she says, well, I just really love to do the accounting. And I'm like... You're kidding, right? Nobody likes accounting, you know? You're kidding. No, no, I love accounting. Some of my, and she began to say, one of my favorite things to do at the end of the month is to reconcile my checkbook. I just love seeing the numbers come out right and finding the, the right answer. And I'm just thinking, I, I've been a pastor many years, but it was at that moment, it was like an epiphany. It was like, I finally understood how God has gifted the body of Christ and somebody actually likes to crunch numbers for a church and that they can't think of anything they'd rather do. She says, I'd rather do that than be on the beach. I'd rather do that than be out shopping. And I'm like, you, what is wrong with you? I didn't say that, but in my mind I'm thinking, but there was nothing wrong with her except that God had perfectly equipped her to function in a way that I don't function. Now I can do all those things, but I would rather be at the beach. I'd even rather go shopping. I'd rather do almost anything. But here God had raised this person up. And, and the, the point that the apostles were making wasn't that, oh, that's beneath us to do. No, they weren't saying that. It's just that we recognize that we've been equipped to do a certain thing. If we neglect that and do something that we're not particularly gifted at, we're going to fail to do what God has called us to do, and we're not going to do what we aren't supposed to do very well. And so they began to look for people that would be right. And so in verse 3, they delegate this task of selecting these, these seven men. And uh, we also, I mean, there are other passages I could reference. I think about Moses when uh, Jethro gave him the advice, you need to delegate, 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 delegate. It's been said that I'd rather put a thousand men to work than, do, than, than to do the work of a thousand men. And so they recognized their physical and spiritual and emotional limitations and they delegated. They appreciated the interdependence and the multifaceted faceted giftings of the church. And so they delegated. They wanted corporate ownership of the decision, of what, what business people call buy-in. You know, they've got a partnership in it. They have ownership of it. And so they delegated. And they told them what kind of men to look for. Number one, those that are from among you. And I think the general rule of thumb when a, when a church needs staffing is that it should come from within. And that's part of the reason why even one of the decisions we were trying to make the other night at our board meeting is that we couldn't arrive. We've got two or three candidates and we're not sure which one. And, and we decided, hey, we need to narrow this down. We haven't given the church an opportunity to know that this is a salaried position with uh, healthcare. And there might be somebody right within our church that God is gonna raise up that I might not be aware of. We've talked to people that we thought might be interested but now we're letting people know in the fellowship, we need to fill this position. And I would like to draw the person from within this fellowship or on this island. The second thing that they said is they have to have a good reputation or a good testimony. They needed to be men of integrity, men of blameless reputation, men with a track record of faithfulness, both inside and outside the church. They needed to be men who are full of the Holy Spirit, 
led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, and controlled by the Spirit. Now, as I thought about this, this qualification of full of the Holy Spirit, I thought, well, isn't that odd? Just two months earlier, those disciples in the upper room were filled with the Holy Spirit. What happened? Why did it have to even be a qualification? If everyone in the body of Christ, if every one of these 20,000 people was full of the Holy Spirit, why was there a qualification that they needed to be men of the Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit? Well, obviously, some of them had been leaking. Somewhere between the time of the day of Pentecost and the day that they came to Christ, that not everyone was equally responsive or yielded to the Holy Spirit. And I think we find that true today. Not all of us are equally yielded. And I would have to say that from day to day, we're not yielded in the same way in our own personal lives. That a week can go by and we can say, yeah, last week I was more yielded to the Spirit. I was more aware of His work and more aware of His presence and more aware of His guidance and His fellowship. This week I'm not, I'm, I haven't really been tracking. And so we find that He gives us as a qualification, full of the Holy Spirit. And I just, as I was thinking this, I thought, wow, would I be qualified if that was a qualification, full of the Holy Spirit, would you be qualified? Empowered by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit? These are the things that, that they were looking for in administrative gifts. We're not talking about the pastor. We're talking about people just administering the gifts that God had given them. And fourthly, they were to be filled with wisdom. So here we've got some men that were to be spiritually minded, full of the Holy Spirit, but also full of wisdom. And wisdom simply from a biblical standpoint is the ability to apply the teachings of God to practical situations. That's what wisdom is. By the way, if you wanna be wise, you need to know the word of God. Because if you don't know the word of God, you don't know God's solutions to practical problems. And if you don't know the solution to practical problems from God's standpoint, we can't be wise. So wisdom doesn't come from a college education or the letters after our name in our title. But wisdom comes when a man or woman knows the Bible and knows how to apply it to particular situations that come up and arise in life. And so these men were not only to be uh, spiritual-minded, but also wise in discerning. And uh, you can understand why, because we've met people who are just very spiritual, full of the Holy Spirit, and they're almost like in a world to themselves. You know, it's like, oh, they're just, how are you doing? Oh, I'm just, uh, God has been speaking to me, and I'm just, I'm in love with him. And we're like, wow, that's awesome. And, and um, how's your personal life? Well, it's a mess. You know, I don't know what to do about anything, but I just want to be with Jesus. I just don't care about the problems. I'm just going to go in my room and worship the Lord, you know? But they don't have the wisdom to know how to, to work out situations in their life, and they almost retreat into their walk with God rather than allow the power of God to help them deal with their life. And then we know other people who, you know, they're like, give me the problem. I'm a problem solver. I know how to, I can, get, I can work us out of any mess we've gotten in, you know. Just show me the information. Give it to me and I'll help you, you know. And they're like, well, you know, pros and cons and they've got the list and they tabulate everything and it's like, but they're not spiritually minded. And so they don't have a heart to really seek the Lord's wisdom because God's wisdom goes beyond man's wisdom. And what man might think is a great solution, God says, that's not my solution. And so these men had to be those that, that held in balance in, in, in a beautiful way the power of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of God with the practical wisdom to know how to apply the teachings of the Word of God. And it's a rare thing, to be honest, to find 
that held in balance properly. But it needs to be what every believer aims at, that we're passionate about God, that homothumadon, that we're, man, in, there's an passionate intensity for God that we share together, but also coupled with wisdom that comes from a proper understanding of God's way in a world that's all upside down and backwards. And God says, this is the way. And so that was the type of person that they were looking for. Now, we also know that in verse four, it says that that would free the, the apostles to give their attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. I think the order of this wordage is important. Prayer first, then ministry of the word. One of the things that we know about, uh, about the Bible, the New Testament, is that every great leader prayed for the people that were under their authority, beginning with Jesus. In John 17, do you know that he prayed for you in that text? This is amazing. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ prayed for you because he prayed for those that would follow the disciples. And his prayer was unity, homothumadon, that intense, passionate oneness that we share, not because we're singing kumbaya and swaying and holding hands, but because we are measuring ourselves against the word of God. And by virtue of this and the relationship with God, we are all in tune with him. And by virtue of being in tune with him, we're in tune with each other and we experience homothumadon. That's what the Bible teaches. So Jesus prayed for, uh, for the disciples. The early church, it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. It was an important part of the ministry. Paul, when he speaks to the various churches in Ephesians and Philippians, he says, I just never stopped praying for you. I, ever since the day I heard about you and your faith in Christ, I have not stopped praying for you. And then he gives, goes on to tell them what he's been praying for them. It's an amazing thing to have somebody praying for you like that. One of my favorite prayers of a pastor or modeling of a pastor is actually not even Paul, but it's Epaphras. We don't know a lot about Epaphras, but he was a pastor in a church in Asia Minor. And it says, this is Paul's account of him in, in Colossians 4. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. And this is what he says. Paul's statement about Epaphras. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Boy, a pastor wrestling in prayer for the church. That's what it should be. And they're saying we can't be distracted from that. We need to hold on to that. We need to be about the business of prayer. And the, the, the other part is the ministry of the word. Interesting, this word is diakoneo again. It's the same word for waiting on tables. Diakoneo logos or logos. So they are ministering, they are serving, but just in a different capacity. In essence, what the, what the apostles are saying is you serve at the tables and we are gonna serve the word. Everyone's serving, but with different giftings. I, I thought about how Satan so desperately wanted to get the early church to stop preaching the word and become consumed with administrative issues, with organizing, with planning, with strategizing, and to stop preaching the word, to stop teaching, to stop evangelizing. I think to myself that, well, it's, it's so easy to point at Satan's strategies and, the, and the, the temptation of the early church to be distracted, but, but then I think, oh, let's bring this all the way down to us. And I think how easily we get distracted from reading the word. We need to be in it every day. We need to be challenged by it and transformed by it. And I wish I could say that the times that I've neglected the word on a particular day, it was because I was you know, very, very concerned about orphans and widows but sometimes it's because I'm reading the newspaper or I get distracted with care of the house or things that come up or phone calls. 
And we get distracted not over very noble things, but we get distracted by, by the mundane minutia of life. And so we need to be very careful because just as Satan is trying to distract the early church from the proclamation of the word, he is trying to distract individual believers from that as well. And if he can get you out of the word, he'll get you out of the power of God and out of relationship with him. And if that happens, you're no longer filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't be. And if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you become weak and uh, enable, unable to carry out the Great Commission. And if that happens, then Satan has achieved its, his objective, which is to stop the movement of God in the world or in your life or in your neighborhood. And so the disciples wisely say, we need to give our attention to these things. So in summary, the, the apostles modeled a very strategic leadership uh, goal in the following ways. Number one, they recognized the problem and they uh, recognized its seriousness as well. Number two, they accurately appraised the problem. Number three, they immediately dealt with the problem. They had a clear grasp of their own responsibilities and their own limitations. They also identified the resolution of the problem, recognizing the various gifts in the church, and then they delegated authority to others to implement the plan. Well, the result was is that the solution pleased the whole group. Win-win, right? If it wasn't win-win, it would have said the Hebraic Jews were really happy with the solution, but the Grecian Jews, they lived with it. No, this fault line underground that existed before this problem began, not only the consequences of it were dealt with, but the root of it was dealt with. And, and this fault was removed. We find out how that was removed even further in verse 5. Because these disciples, this whole group of them, chose seven candidates. The interesting thing is, is that all seven appointed candidates are all Greek. All their names are Greek. They're Hebrews, but they're the Hellenized group. Which means that the Hebraic Jews recognized the problem that the Hellenized Greeks were feeling kind of like a minority. They were feeling kind of less than. They were being, in subtle ways, it may have even been communicated by the Hebraic Jews. Well, you guys are, boy, I'm glad you came. Better late than never. You know, little comments might have been said like that. And all of a sudden, the Hellenized Greeks were kind of feeling like second-class citizens. So the Hebraic Jews recognized this problem, and they said love and unity and what God is doing is more important than our having our way. And so what they did is they allowed all the appointees to be Greek in background. All the, the Grecian Jews. I, I find that such an act of humility and love because if it had been me, I might have said, well, um, you know, most of us here are Hebraic and some of you Grecian Jews uh, will appoint four and you appoint three. And I would have thought, well, that's a very fair thing. But fair wasn't what they were after. They were after dealing with the fault line underground in the beginning. They wanted to deal with the root of the problem. And so they went completely overboard and they said, this is a problem that we have created. We didn't mean to. It's an administrative issue. But there is, I can see, some sort of an underlying fault line here. We want to kill it. We want to deal with it. We want you Grecian Jews to appoint all seven. And we're going to ratify them and support it because we love you. We care about homothumadon. We care about like-minded passion for Christ. And we don't want the work of God to be, be, be derailed. So we are going to lay our obligations and responsibilities and our opportunities and our privileges down so that we can succeed and experience that. 
And the result was is that they picked these great guys, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas. And we're going to study more about these men in the future. But they were phenomenal men, godly men, that whether you were uh, 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 from the Hellenistic background or the he Hebrew background, whatever it was, that everyone was like, these are great guys. And the, the result was that everyone was pleased. And the fault line, the root of the problem was dealt with. Now, I just want to share briefly on this because when you're having a problem or a conflict, you can just deal with the, the consequences or you can get at the root. You can simply, even Stephen, okay, this is your half, this is my half. Or it reminds me of Abraham and Lot. Do you remember the story about Abraham and Lot? They, their herds were too big and they were, their herdsmen were fighting. And Abraham came and he did exactly what the Hebraic Jews did, what the apostles did. He said, hey, we don't want to fight. We want homothumadon. We want like-minded passion for God. We don't want to be distracted. And so Abraham came to Lot. Abraham, the older, the senior, the one that should have had the privileges, he said to Lot, Lot, you choose whatever you want and I'll take what's left. And God ended up blessing both of them, but in particular Abraham in the Rocky Hill country. And God still blessed him because God always blesses people that aim at homothumadon that are willing to lay down their privileges, their rights, and say, you know what? I want to bless you. I don't want to just deal with the surface issue. I want to deal with the root. I want you to know that I'm committed to you. I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that I care more about you than winning or having this situation resolved the way I want to. And that's what the apostles did. Well, the results are amazing. They prayed for these guys and laid hands on them, and it tells us in verse 7 what the outcome was. Phenomenal. It says that the word of God spread. The word of God kept spreading exactly what Satan wanted to stop. It abounded more and more and more. Why? Because a potentially divisive issue was diffused and resolved. The unity of the church was preserved and strengthened, and the apostles remained focused on the teaching and the preaching of the word. And because of it, the word of God spread. The second thing that we find out in, in the second part of verse 7 is that the number of disciples increased rapidly. I, the, the, the phrase means that it, it exploded, that it multiplied. Actually, the word in Greek is violently. So we're talking about the, the church was just exploding. Why? Because the apostles didn't delay. They didn't put off a decision. They didn't put down the Grecian Jews. They didn't even confront them for their sin of murmuring. They simply recognized as a problem and they grabbed hold of it and they said, this is what we need to do. And they applied wisdom from the scriptures to a, to a difficult situation that could have completely devastated the church and thinned its ranks in a, in, a, in a matter of days. And yet what happened is that the church was actually advanced. Now, we're talking about church, but I would also suggest that the same thing can happen in your family life. Any of you have a little disagreement with your spouse this week? If you look back on it, more than likely it was a win-lose or a lose-win. I have to win, you have to lose if you really want to, you know, show me that you care or whatever it might be. But what the Bible says is that we need to be aiming at win-win. That's what the disciples did. When win-win happens, it's everyone is happy. And what happens is that the kingdom of God advances. The gospel goes out. People are affected by it because we weren't aiming at win-lose or lose-win. It's a wonderful way to live. And what happens is that you begin to experience the wonder of the divine. You begin to see the miraculous power of God at activity in your life. Rather than choking down all the losses or gloating over all the wins, you're able to see 
the heavens open and the message delivered and all of a sudden things pop in your mind that you never even considered that allow both parties to win. And so that's what happened with the disciples. Verse seven tells us the last part that even a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That's an amazing thing. The priests, the people who were a part of even the Sanhedrin were turning to Christ because they saw something they'd never seen before and that was homothumadon in the midst of a crisis. So Satan's strategy failed. The unity of the church was preserved. The giftings of the church were put to fuller use than ever before. And the gospel and the kingdom of God were advanced and many were saved. Satan is still at, at work. He's still active today. He's still looking for opportunities to derail the work in your life. He's looking for anything he can. He can bring persecution. He can contaminate your spiritual life make you unfit for the power of God to really work in you. He's there, he's in your life, but, but you're no longer really fit for service. Or he can even use division. He can use faults and murmurings, whether it's with your husband or your wife or your kids or someone in the church. Sometimes you might even come to church and you think, man, I'm so distracted. I can't, I can't you know, even worship because you know, they're over there or they're sitting over there. And, and I just, you know... And I'm thinking, what a shame that that, that, that occurs. I know it happens. I, I don't want to have any, any uh, hard feelings or brokenness with anybody. I don't know why anybody wouldn't like me. I'm such a nice guy. I mean, I can't imagine anyone ever having a problem with me. But people do because I'm, I'm, I can't see who I really am sometimes. And I need other people in my life to help me see it. But it's all our communal responsibility to aim at homothumadon, like-minded passion for Christ, where we don't allow Satan to come in. We're thinking, oh, grumble, complain, murmur, this person, this, this person, that, when all the while we're not aware of the fact that Satan is behind all of it trying to tear away the power of the church and strip it of homothumadon. And God gives us this opportunity and this text to see it doesn't have to be that way. That if we all are willing and available, God can bring even greater unity than ever before. It's not just let's make it even Stephen back to where it was before, but we can advance through it and advance past it in such a way that we not only deal with the problem that is on the surface, but we deal with the very root of it that brought it to the surface in the first place. And that's what the early church did. And that's what we're called to as well. That's such an exciting, this Bible is just amazing. It's just an amazing thing that we've got in our hand. And the word that God has given us this morning is transformational. If you'll put it into practice, the Bible says that you're going to shine like stars in the universe because you're going to be so dramatically different than the people in the world. And God is calling us to be dramatically different. I pray that you would allow this to touch your heart. Even the, 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 uh, the priests were coming to Christ. Even they were, uh, the, the word in the Greek, it means they were coming under the authority of God. They were yielding themselves. And as we obey the word of God, we are coming under his authority. And when we find ourselves in that place, we will find ourselves in a place of blessing. Isn't that where you want to be? I want to experience a blessing of God. I want to walk in homothumadon. And, you know, it could be that some of you are, I've done something to you. I don't know. But I would be happy to talk to anybody about it. I would encourage you to have that same attitude with each other and work things out so that you can aggressively advance the kingdom, not being derailed, not being distracted from the calling that God has. And I also want to encourage you that you may think your part isn't very big. You might think that accounting is the greatest thing that could ever happen to a person. And you're thinking nobody's going to be interested in that. And I'm going to say, yes, we are. Whatever your gift is, we would like to see it put to use for the glory of God. All these things serve to advance the work of God. Let's advance the work of God. 
Father, we thank you for this time this morning. And Lord, what a joy it is to be together. Thank you for your word. May it find its place in our heart, God, as we apply it according to your will. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.